Last week we started a series called I Hate People. I shared with you it seems like we're in a day and time where we hear the phrase I hate people more than ever. I don't know if it's that we have a lower tolerance than ever before or that Things back in the, I've hit that age now, so things back in the old days that we didn't make public, we now make public because of social media. And so it just makes us realize we hate people. We didn't know every little thing that our neighbor was doing back in the day, so we didn't know we hated them. We didn't know the person at church that we see on Sunday and we hug and they act like we have everything in common. We didn't know we hated them 20 years ago. Now we hear everything. We know their political views, their religious views, their marital views, their views on things we don't really need to know about. In the old days, you just hated people based on the fact that they rooted for the wrong football team. And that's a legitimate biblical reason (laughs) to hate somebody. Now we live in a day and time where everyone shares everything all the time. And it's just really easy to get into that mindset of, I hate people. But the problem with I hate people is, it's twofold. First of all, it's just contrary to the Word of God. As much as I'd like to be able to sweep in broad strokes and say, I hate people, in order for me to live by the mindset that I hate people, I have to live my life contrary to the Word of God. Because there's a lot of different ideologies when you read this book, but there's no way you can read this book and walk away from this book thinking, man, we are supposed to hate people. It's acceptable to hate people. This book is all about two things and two things only. If we had to sum up the Bible in two things, it's about loving God and about loving people. The Bible, let's try something real quick because I'm going to say it again. The last time I looked at the clock last night, it was 347. I'm tired. I dare say I'm in a foul mood. I'm so tired. Right now I am running on at about 1145 yesterday. I had two soft tacos, a hard taco, and a double-decker taco from Taco Bell. I ate nothing last night. This morning I had two apple fritters, two apple fritters. I don't want to hear any comments from you down there on the front row. I might have had two and a half apple fritters. Jerry, shut up back there. We don't need commentary every Sunday from you. Sit back there, dance during worship, and listen to the sermon. I'm the one preaching today. I love you, by the way. Cut that out of the video. So right now I'm running on two and a half apple fritters and a monster energy drink. So what I need you to do is be a little more active today. So I'm going to count to three and we're going to shout amen, okay? Not you, Jerry. You ain't even allowed to say amen. One, two, three. Three. Now listen, I know I pastor the whitest church in Cherokee County. With the exception of Kevin and Bubba, everybody in here is white. But I need you to talk back to me today, all right? So listen, listen, listen. It's unbiblical to go through life saying, I hate people. The Bible says this in Mark 12. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's a powerful verse because here's what it's saying. It's saying God wants all of you. He wants your emotional love, your mental love, your physical love, your spiritual love. He said, I'm not satisfied with 90% of you. For me, it's all or nothing. And then he comes back and says, and the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. He says there is no greater commandment than these. No greater commandments than what? Loving God and loving people. So when we go around and we live with the mindset that I hate 
people. There isn't a mindset that could be more unbiblical. So we love to say it. We say it because it gets laughs from people. We say it because we're frustrated with people. But we have got to have a mind shift because what happens in our mind comes out of our mouth. What happens in our mind affects our heart. What happens in our mind affects our body. And when we live our life thinking, man, I hate people, we get to the point in our life where we're miserable. And, And then the second thing is simply this. Not only is it unbiblical, when you say you hate people, you're lying. You're 100% lying. You don't hate people. You don't hate every person that you come in contact with. What you mean is, is you hate certain people. And to be honest with you, I'm not even sure you hate certain people. What you hate is, is you hate the actions of certain people. The problem is we allow the actions of others to affect us. We can't control how people treat us and how people are towards us. So instead of loving people, we throw out these broad statements like, I hate people. Most of the time when someone has hurt us, and I've learned this over and over and over, most of the time, I did not say all of the time, but most of the time when we allow other people to hurt us, It's because we have allowed them to hurt us. We have not put up the proper boundaries to deal with the characteristic types of the people that we're dealing with. And when you have no boundaries, it's kind of like we talked about in the last series. When you have no wall around you, like the wall around the city, you have opened yourself up to not have protection. And so what we need to do is we need to learn how to deal with certain people in certain situations. And so that's what we're doing. That way we can move from the mindset of I hate people to I love people. Because I've biblically learned how to deal with certain people. We're looking at different characteristics of people. Last week, if you missed the message, you can go to the website, you can go to your app store, you can uh, uh, podcast, whatever's on your phone, you can download that. And we talked about how do we deal with controlling people. How do we deal with people who are trying to control us? We talked about the reasons people try to control us. We talked about the boundaries that we need to set up with people who are trying to control us. The feedback, well, I was blown away with it. When you learn how to start putting boundaries up and people no longer have control over you, it's amazing how your mindset turns towards people. Because here's what's going to happen to controlling people when you put boundaries up. They're either going to realize they can't control you and they're going to stop. That's a win. Or they're going to realize they can't control you and they're going to leave. And that's a win. Today we're going to be talking about something that I know us in the church never deal with. I've heard myths that there's people like this in the church world. I've heard that at other churches, not at churches like Action Church, are there people like this. But we're going to be talking about how do we deal with hypocritical people. How do we deal with people who say one thing and they live out another thing? How do we deal with those people that we just look at and we think to ourselves, man, they are fake. They act like this, but I know this. How many of you today would say, you know something, I know a hypocrite? How many of you would say, don't raise your hand. We say, I'm sitting next to that person. The number one complaint from non-Christians about Christians is they're all a bunch of... I'm not going to church and being around a bunch of... I always thought that funny because we'll go to work and be around a bunch of... We'll go to the bar and be around a bunch of. Lord God knows we'll go to the family reunion to be around a bunch of. But boy, when it comes to church, we'll use it as an excuse not to go to church. And I get it, man. But I also had to tell you this. My name is Gary Lamb, and I am probably the king of being a hypocrite. Especially in the role I'm at, because it's real easy for me to get up here and tell you everything this book tells you on how you should live your life. It's a whole nother story when I got to live it. 
We love to tell our kids, do what I say and not what I do. We're hypocrites. And we're surrounded by hypocrites. And there's nothing that will drain your love for the human race like hypocrites. There's nothing that will make you detest human beings more than hypocritical people. But we're not to detest people. We're not to hate people. We're to love people. So what we've got to do is we've got to get to the point in our life where we learn how to deal with hypocritical people. Because here's the deal with hypocritical people. They ain't going nowhere. You can't avoid them. You can't go around them. You can't go under them. You can't go over them. You're going to deal with them. And we've got to get to the point in our life where we learn biblically how to deal with these people. The word hypocrite's not a new word. It was actually around before Jesus was ever born. It was actually a stage term that was given to people who performed cultural arts. They would roll into town, they would perform on stage, and the words they identified, the word that we get the word hypocrite from, was what they would call these actors. Because they would get on stage and they would pretend to be something that they really were not. They would get up and perform their character. They would get up and perform their play. They would get up and do what they're doing, and they would leave the stage, and they would be someone totally different. So the word that we get hypocrite from comes from that day and time. Acting like you're something that you're not at all. So how do we deal with hypocrites? And what's funny is as you read the Gospels, Jesus, the most loving person ever, had no room for hypocrites. Constantly in the Word of God, he's calling out hypocrites. In Matthew 23, again and again and again, seven times he calls out hypocrites. And in verse 28, he says this, In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Everywhere that Jesus went, he was surrounded by hypocrites. People who on the outside looked like they had it together. People on the outside who seemed to have it together. People on the outside who put on the illusion, they put on, dare I say, the act of having it together. But on the inside, they were vile people. They were wicked people. They were living a life contrary to what their mouth spoke. These type of people, Jesus couldn't stand these type of people. He couldn't stand the actions of these type of people. And we're all surrounded by hypocrites. Chances are real good you're sitting very close to a hypocrite today. They come to church. They act like they've got everything together. They act like they've got the perfect family. They act like everything is wonderful. And turmoil is going on behind the scenes. Turmoil was going on on the way to church this morning. But they flipped into their role when they turned into the parking lot. You work with hypocrites. People who quote the Bible and talk about church. And lie, chill, and steal. It's going to be a long day, I told you I'm tired. And cheat. You've got a boss who loves to talk about he's a deacon at such and such and such church. And every time you turn around, he's ripping you off and trying to rob you of hours, shortchange you on this. He's doing unethical things at the job to customers, and you know about it. But boy, every time he can fly the Jesus flag to get more work, he flies the Jesus flag to get more work. Let me give you some uh, free advice that has nothing to do with the sermon today. Some business advice. As someone who pastors a church and operates business, if they ever have a Jesus fish on their business card, on their car, on their billboard, don't use them. If you have a Jesus fish on that, I'm sorry if I offended you, and you might be the exception to the rule. But man, we love to live the life of hypocrisy when it comes to Jesus. When it benefits us. We love to wave that flag. We love to toot the Jesus horn. But behind the scenes, we're living as wicked as everyone else. So the question becomes, 
how do we respond when dealing with hypocrites? Are we supposed to respond when we're dealing with hypocrites? How, how do we love those who proclaim one thing inwardly? Or excuse me, they're proclaiming one thing outwardly, but they're totally different inwardly. I think the first thing we do before we get to the point of asking how we deal with them, I think sometimes we've got to step back. My counseling, my counselor has taught me this concept. You step back and you put yourself in the shoes of the other person. I think sometimes we're real quick to jump on somebody when they're dealing with something and we see that they're hypocrites instead of stepping back and saying, you know what, I wonder why they're acting like this to begin with. So I think what we got to do in dealing with the hypocrite, because we're all going to deal with hypocrites, I think, first of all, we got to step back and evaluate the situation and put ourselves in their shoes to begin with, and we've got to ask some tough questions. And we've got to come to some conclusions before we can advance on how we're going to deal with them. Because here's the deal. Maybe they're acting like that because maybe they're not a Christian to begin with. You ever thought about that? Especially here in America, we think if someone goes to Christian, Barry, what's going on with my mic? Do I need to move to a handheld? Barry, you even back there? It keeps cutting out. Does it keep cutting out on y'all? keeps cutting out on me. Or am I hallucinating right now from the sugar rush in my head? In my head, it keeps cutting out, okay? In America, we think if you, America, if you're born in America, you're Christian. Go to church on Easter, you're Christian. Go to church every week, must be a Christian. Own a Bible, must be a Christian. Daddy was a Christian, (laughs) you must be a Christian. And so we tend to classify everybody as Christians, and then we're shocked when people act a certain way, but the reality of the situation is, maybe they're not Christians to begin with. The Bible says this in 1 John, whoever says, I know him, you done? You good? You got your camera angle right, your chairs right? I can't yell at Jerry and not yell at you. You good? Got them new flip-flops on, proud of them. All I hear is them flopping while you moving chairs around. We're going to get through it today? You tracking with me? Lord, we come to you today. I pray I don't kill somebody. I pray I don't become a hypocrite today, Lord. And snap somebody's neck. Because I feel it coming and welling up inside of me at this moment. The Bible says this in 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Here's the problem. Maybe you're holding someone to a Christian standard who's not a Christian to begin with. Church attendance doesn't make you a Christian. Your good deeds does not make you a Christian. How much money you give doesn't make you a Christian. The fact that you say you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. And so I think so many times we look at people and they're living a certain lifestyle and they're living a certain way and we're thinking, man, what a hypocrite. They're not a hypocrite because they're not a Christ follower to begin with. And we maybe need to realize that just because they go to church just because they claim, just because they think they're a Christian doesn't mean they're a Christian. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, said the biggest mission field in the world is the church pews on Sunday morning. People who think that they're Christ followers because they play church on Sunday morning. Jesus said, everyone who says, calls me Lord, doesn't believe that I'm Lord. Maybe the person that you're dealing with simply doesn't know God. Or maybe this. Maybe they don't know any better yet. Maybe they don't know any better yet. Why are they behaving this way? Why why are they saying one thing and they're living another way? Maybe they're new to their faith. 
Maybe they haven't been taught how they're supposed to live yet. Paul was dealing with this problem in Corinth, and he addressed the problem in 1 Corinthians. He said, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. He said, listen, the way I've got to deal with you, I've got to deal with you different because you're literally still infants in Christ. He said, I can't hold you to the standard that I would hold other people to. I can't expect you to follow the word of God like other people because you're still an infant. We have 572 kids in our home, and they range in age from 3 to 17. We expect different things from the 3-year-old than we do the 17-year-old, even though the 3-year-old is probably more respectful and well, more well-mannered than the 17-year-old. We have different expectations. We have a first grader in our home. We expect the first grader to do this amazing thing called go to the restroom. And when you go to the restroom... And do certain things in the restroom. We expect the first grader to be able to handle his business after he has done what he has to do in the restroom. The three-year-old the other day decided to go to the restroom on her own. Big step for the three-year-old. We were proud of the three-year-old. The three-year-old moved her stool in front of the toilet. And put her little potty seat on there. And pulled her pants down and got up there and handled her business. The three-year-old then after handling her business did not know the next steps after you handle your business, jumped off the potty, and in the process of jumping off the potty, made a mess. We have different expectations for the three-year-old than we do the seven-year-old. Maybe the person that you're dealing with is just new in their faith. Maybe they just don't know better. You're 15 years into your faith. You're 10 years into your walk with God. You're five years into the walk with God. God has revealed some things to you over the years. I'm 20-something years into my walk with God, and God reveals things to me every day in areas that I need to improve. Yet we're looking at this brand-new believer or this person who hasn't been taught yet, and we're holding them to the same standard that we hold ourselves to, and we're wondering why they're hypocrites. Maybe they just don't know better. It's amazing how it changes when we put ourselves in other people's shoes. How do we deal with hypocrites? Well, you've got to figure out what kind of hypocrite they are. Maybe they're not even Christ followers to begin with. Maybe they just don't know better. This is going to be the one we focus on, though. Maybe they do know better, but they still choose to disobey God. These are the ones I think that just get us the most riled up. These are the ones that the outside world looks at and says, man, the church is full of hypocrites. Maybe they do know better, yet they make the decision to still disobey God. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.16, live as free people. But not, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. He said, here's what you need to understand. You're free. You're free to live the way that you want to live. God is not a puppet master, contrary to what some churches preach. God does not dictate every move and every thought and every breath that we take. God is not responsible for all the things that happen in our life. And Why did God allow this to happen? And why did this? And I loved God and I served God and I did this. And yet, this still happened. Well, maybe it just happened because people are stupid and they do stupid stuff. So we have freedom. But we're to live submitted to God as slaves that's a weird word in our day and time, but in this day and time it would have been a word that they understood and they knew. And what it meant was just in submission to God. Though we have the freedom to do whatever we want, we ought to live to the standard that God has laid out for us. We're still his servants. He said, don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. I'm forgiven, so I'm doing this. Ah, you know, I'm, I live under grace. And all those things are true. You are forgiven and we live under grace. But God said, man, if, if we're truly in tune with God, if we're truly walking the way God would have us to walk, we're still going to live submitted to the life that God has called us to live. He's given us a book full of principles that we're to follow. If we follow, man, we, the big catchphrase now is your best life. Now, you want your best life. Now, you get in this book and you live the principles that are laid out because the way you're doing it, baby, ain't working. Don't use the grace of God as some kind of, of covering to live any way you want to live. 
And what these people do, these ones that know better, they get real defensive. Will you put that point back up there, Xander? That number three, please. These people, they get real defensive. Who, who are you to judge me? Who, who are you to judge me? And what I do is nobody's business anyway. God's going to forgive me as it is. He, God's grace covers it. And over time, they begin, these people, they begin to, to rationalize their hypocrisy. They begin to justify their lifestyle. It's not that big of a deal. God, God's allowing me to do this. Christian guy, he's defending his addiction to porn. I'm not hurting anybody. It's nobody else's business. My wife wasn't meeting my needs anyway. They'll get up and preach a whole different thing, living the life of a hypocrite. It started out as justification, rationalization. Now it blow, turns into pure, blown hypocrisy. God's going to, you know, I, I do this and I do that, but, but it's just I, I work hard and, and, and I'm owed this. We know better, but we still choose to disobey God. So what do you do with those people who fall into this category? Because here's the deal. When you step back and you put yourself in other people's shoes and you're dealing with hypocrites, it'll help you. Because first of all, man, if they're a Christ follower, you don't have the right to expect them to live like a Christ follower. If they're still new in their faith, maybe instead of you getting angry and getting mad at them, you come alongside them in a loving way. I'm going to talk about that here in a few minutes. And you help them grow in their faith. Thank God for the people who came along and helped me grow in my faith. Some of them, Amazing hypocrites. But how do we deal with those who know better, but they still choose to disobey God? And how we deal with this is very important. Because if we deal with this wrong, not only can we push people who are observing us further away from God, Not only can we hurt the person that we're going to deal with who's living in hypocrisy, if we handle it wrong, we can hurt ourselves. And when we start to hurt ourselves, we get into the mindset that I hate people. You've got to approach it prayerfully, as you ought to approach anything. You've got to approach it delicately. But make no mistake about it, in order to have boundaries with a hypocrite, you've got to approach it. You've got to deal with it. The Bible says we're to deal with it. So what we're going to do is we're going to approach God prayerfully in a couple of things. We're going to pray, God, help me confront with the heart to restore. That's vital, the wording of that. So many times we do not confront people with the right motives. We confront to let them know they're wrong. We confront to let them know, you've hurt me. We confront with selfish motives. The Bible says any time that you confront in disagreement, the purpose is to restore. We've got to pray, prayerfully go to God. God, help me confront with a heart to restore. Help me confront with a heart that matters. God, help me approach in a biblical way. The Bible says this in Galatians 6.1. Brothers and sisters... If someone is called in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves. You may also be tempted. We'll get to that in a few minutes. And what does it mean to restore? See, here's the problem with the church. We no longer care about restoration. We care about excommunication. You did me wrong, you ought to suffer. You hurt me, you ought to pay. They screwed up. Man, we're the only, we heard it so cliche, we're the only army that shoots our own. It's almost like we delight in watching our brothers and sisters screw up where we can mock them and we can make fun of them and we can make them outcast. But every time you see one-on-one -on -one confrontation in the Bible and someone's having to confront someone else about their sin, the end goal is always restoration. 
is to restore them to what they were prior to their, their sin. It, it means to bring back or make whole again. Our heart ought to be to restore, to bring them back to God's original purpose and to do this gently and humbly. <laughs> I love the imagery of the Bible. We're to confront them humbly, gently. They've wandered away is the imagery here. And like a shepherd goes after the sheep, we're to help them, guide them, See, our problem is we confront to judge instead of confronting to guide. We confront to judge, to point out their sin, to point out their fault, instead of confronting to guide them back to what they should be. You're not to judge. You're not the judge. You don't get to dictate their right and their wrong. You're to guide them by helping them. I've told this story before, I think. In my previous life, I was pretty crude from the stage. You say, you're pretty crude now. You have no idea. <laughs> we should thank the Lord right now for the way he grows us. Because I have grown in my crudeness over the years. I was crude. Like, it was almost my shtick. I would travel all over. I would preach on Sunday, and I'd get on a plane. I'd fly all over and preach in conferences all over the country. And they would bring me in because they would be like, I can't wait to see, see how you're going to make them uncomfortable. Can't wait to see what Gary's going to say from the stage. And it was always it was kind of my shtick, and people would confront me about it all the time. People in my church would confront me all the time about it. You're crude. You're rude. You need to stop that. If you don't quit being so crude, man, we're out of here. You know what's funny about that? Every time they confronted me to judge me, I was like stone cold, baby. I just wanted to give them the one finger salute times two because their hearts weren't in the right way. All it made me want to do was be that way more. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that was the rebellion in me. And then one day I had an older guy who went to my church. i never forget, older guy came to our very first service ever. was in his 70s. And he came and he sat me down. And he said, Pastor... Can I talk to you? And he, he was that age where he still called me pastor. And I said, yes, sir. He said, I need you to know I love you. And he said, I'll never forget. He said, you need to know no matter what, I ain't going anywhere. And he said, you need to know that I stand by you. He said, but I've noticed on the stage you're just getting more and more crude. And I said, yeah, I know. I've had a lot of people come to me about that. I said, it just irritates the crap out of me. He said, I get it. He said, but I didn't know other people had been coming to you. So if other people have been coming to you, and now I feel led to come to you. He goes, I'm not telling you to stop. He goes, would you just do me a favor? I said, yeah, what do you want? Would you just pray about it in your quiet time? And ask God to reveal to you whether or not maybe you're being too crude from the stage or not. And if God doesn't reveal it to you and God doesn't convince you, man, that's between you and God. And the way he came to me, I said, you know what, I'll do that. And I started praying about it. God, is it my pride that's letting me do that? Is it my arrogance that's letting me do that? Is it just the fact that I love the fact that that's what I'm becoming known for and it's kind of my thing? And I begin to pray about it. And about five days later, I was flown out to preach at a conference. And it was the first time I was somewhat close to home. And so my daughter was in the crowd. It was on a Saturday. It was the first time my daughter had ever been in the crowd while I was on stage. And I'm going through my shtick. And the great thing about being a traveling preacher is you only got to have like four sermons. And they're called sugar sticks. And you preach these sugar sticks everywhere you go because it's different crowds and they haven't heard them. And so you know right where to throw the punchline in. You know right where to throw the joke. And I knew right where to throw the crudeness in and freak everybody out, especially all the religion. I loved that. It was always awesome. I'd, I'd get real hyped up for the crudeness. And I like, here it comes. And I got ready to wind them up. And, I'm like, and I looked over to my right. And there was my daughter. She was about seven years old at that time. And I looked over and I saw her. And I went back to say my thing. And I looked over again. 
And I went to say it, and I was like, and I looked down, and I said, man, I don't want her to hear me say that. I don't want her to say what I'm about to say. And I moved on. I didn't say anything about it. I, I skipped that part, the crude part of my talk. And God convicted me of how I was on stage. But do you notice the difference? The people who came to me in a judging way did nothing for me. The old wise guy who came to me with the hope of restoring and the hope of me just saying, man, I just want you to know I see this and I hope you pray through. It was the way he came to me. He came to me in the biblical way. His goal was not to tell me I was doing wrong. His goal was to want to see the best for me. And it changed the way I approached that situation. I know what some of you are saying, but Gary, you're still crude. I'm just telling you, I was, I'm, I've grown a lot now. I've grown a lot. That's what Jesus did. Jesus approached with grace and love. I mean, think about the time that he comes up on the scene and there's the woman in adultery and she's had all the husbands and all the people are judging her and they're all standing around and they want to stone her and they're just blah, blah, blah. And they turn to Jesus and they say, what would you do? And Jesus just gets down on the sand and starts writing something. And the Bible doesn't tell us what he writes. I've heard theologians say that he, he began to write all the people around him sins because they all started one by one walking away. He looked up at that girl and said, where's your accusers? And she said, they walked away. He said, they haven't condemned you. I, I don't condemn you either. Go in love. The goal of restoration, I am convinced. I need to do a series on restoration because I need to do it for my own life. Like Restoration is the missing ingredient in our walk with God. So if we're going to confront a hypocrite, we've got to prayerfully say, God, help me confront with a heart to restore. We've got to make sure our motives are right when dealing with hypocrites. The next prayer we've got to pray is we're going to pray, God, help me confront carefully. Help me confront carefully. Brothers and sisters, if someone is called in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. That's where we've got to be careful. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. If someone's caught in sin and the, the sin of hypocrisy and we're to confront that person, we've got to watch over ourselves because what happens is how we approach that person about their sin, when we approach that person pridefully, a lot of times it becomes a stumbling block in our own life. I've seen this with a lot of addicts over the years. An addict gets clean, they're living the life, they're sober. And their heart's in the right place, and they want to confront every other addict out there. And man, they're right. I mean, you're this and you're that. And how they're approaching them is not to restore them, it's to judge them. And what happens is the one who's confronting ends up stumbling because instead of confronting with love, they're confronting with pride, and it becomes a stumbling block. We've got to approach carefully and make sure that we're approaching with the right heart and, a heart, and not a heart of arrogance. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says this, So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. We've got to be aware of our own actions. He said if you're, if you're standing firm, if you're really confident in yourself and you feel like you've got it together where you can confront someone else about what's going on in the life, make sure you're confronting for the right reasons to restore, but make sure you're confronting with the right reasons carefully where it doesn't become a stumbling block for you. I think I've told you this story before. The first church I ever pastored, I'd been pastoring this church about six months. I was 22 years old. I was young. I was in Ames, Iowa. I had no family around me, no friends around me. I knew no one. And I was pastoring this old school Baptist church. And they had brought me in because they were going to close that church down. They were on the outskirts of town. It was a college town. And they wanted to move into town and start a new church. And we were in that transitional period of doing that, and this old lady came to me, old Miss Jabberjaw. And old Miss Jabberjaw was fired up because one of the teenage girls in the church had got pregnant. I'd never really dealt with anything like that. And they're like, what are we going to do about her preacher? What are we going to do? And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know. What are we going to do about her? She's pregnant. What, what can we do about it? Love her? I mean, like, what are we supposed to do about her? You know, I mean, she would not stop. And back in the day, listen, back in the day, kids, you had these things called landlines. So in old churches like that, you had a telephone ministry. 
And the telephone ministry, that was just code for gossip ministry. Have you heard about so-and-so? Have you heard about that little girl? She's pregnant at the church. What kind of example is that to all the teenagers in the church? I guess every teenager's going to get pregnant now because little girl's pregnant, blah, 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 blah. And pastor, we just got to handle this. You need to go confront the parent. Like, what am I supposed like, to I, And I remember, I was, I was like, they didn't teach me this in Bible college, man. Like, what do you mean? Like, what am I supposed to go confront the parents about? Hey, I don't know if you know if your daughter's pregnant, even though you're the ones who told me. She, they need to leave the church. Oh, What? Like, I, I didn't know. I'm like, what? I, was, I remember being all confused. And, and, and God, for the, one of the few times in my life, I, like, I got to take a few days and pray about this. And during that time of praying, an amazing thing happened. The daddy, because you know it takes a guy to get a girl pregnant, in case you didn't know. The teenage boy, who was the daddy of the teenage girl, turned out to be Miss Old Jabberjaw's son. And suddenly, Miss Old Jabberjaw didn't want us to run everybody out of church and didn't want us to confront and didn't even want the telephone ministry going. But here's my point she got prideful in her confronting, she got prideful in her issue. And in the process, she had no desire to confront with the restoration. She had no desire to confront with the heart of bringing healing. She wanted to stir up discord, and her pride got her, and her judgmental attitude. And all of a sudden, God says, hey, bam. I'll never forget when I went through my stuff that I went through about 10 years ago. There was one pastor, and he was relentless. Man, this is back in the day of blogs. Blogs were hot. And this guy just took it upon himself. He was in the next town over, down to he's in Cartersville. And man, he would just write these blogs about me all the time, all the time. Gary Lamb was this, and Gary's Lamb that. And the very first day I ever met Gary Lamb, I knew him. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, just ruthless, man, for months and months and months. Until it came out that what he was writing about me, he'd been doing, involved in for about five years. And then suddenly, guess who the first person he reached out to was? Prideful. I, I, I've learned this, and this is not always true. But I've learned that a lot of times when someone is so passionate, passionately opposed to a certain sin... A lot of times that certain sin is the stumbling block in their own life. We're to confront carefully. Do you know the Bible actually tells us how we're to confront people? In Matthew 18, and we're limited on time, so I'm not going to go read it all. But here, in Matthew 18, the Bible talks about how to confront you. ought to go read it. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says if you have a problem with a, don't miss this, a brother or sister. So when a believer does you wrong, here's how you're to confront them. First of all, you're to go to them one-on-one. Imagine that. One-on-one does not mean through Facebook. One-on-one does not mean through Twitter. One-on-one does not even mean through text messages. It means you grow. It means you decide to have enough spine to confront somebody one-on-one. You go to that person, you say, hey, here's my issue. Here's where I'm having a problem. Then the Bible says this. The Bible says if they don't listen, they won't receive what you're saying. You then go find somebody and you take them with you. That way that person can see how you've approached them. If they reject that, the Bible says you go to a leader in the church. You take a leader of the church with you. And you confront that person if it can't be resolved. And then here's the one that we have the biggest problem with. It goes back to boundaries. The Bible says if they reject all three of those things, the Bible says you have nothing to do with that person again. Not to cut them off out of anger. Not to cut them off out of judgment. But to cut them off out of restoration. There's a missing concept in the church today called church discipline. It's found in Matthew 18. The purpose of Matthew 18 and booting someone from the fellowship of the church is not punishment. It's restoration. Some of you would do really good to learn that principle, especially when it comes to those in addiction. 
You can continue on and on and on. I was meeting with someone struggling with addiction the other day. Or not, it wasn't the other day. It's been a few months ago. And my friend, it was me and Glenn. And it was Glenn's, um, I think it's Glenn's cousin. And we stood back here in the back. His name's Chris. And Chris made a comment. Chris has been clean for a couple of years now, thriving in life. And he made the comment. He said, you know what finally did it for me? He said, everybody cut me out. There was no one to bail me out anymore. There was no one to let me live in their basement anymore. There was no one to slip me gas money anymore. There was no one to, to, to say, hey, man, let me go grab you a hot meal anymore. And he said, when everybody was done with me, I hit my bottom and realized I'm the only one, me and God, that can get out of this. The problem with enabling is not that you're a bad person. It's you're a loving person. I get that. But you don't realize so many times, man, you're doing more harm than you are good. The biblical things, as you confront them, you take someone with you, you take a leader, and then you cut those people out of your life until the point that they're ready to accept responsibility for their actions. I don't think I like that. Take it up with God. I didn't write it. You know the reason boundaries are not working in your life? It's because you're not doing it biblically. Your way's not working. My way's not working. I get it, man. It's hard for me to cut somebody out. I'm the pastor, and I'm supposed to love. But sometimes the most loving thing you can do to someone is cut them out of your life. Because you've got to love you more than you can love them. This ain't the golden corral right here, baby. You don't get to come eat the steak and the mac and cheese. you got to throw some green beans and Brussels sprouts on there, too. You don't get to pick and choose what you like and what you want to follow. And it's funny to me when anyone says, this part of my life's falling apart. And I say, how are you handling that? Well, I do, here's what the Bible says. I don't think I can do it that way. Then maybe that's the reason it's not working. How do we deal with hypocrites? We confront them to restore. We confront them carefully. Because we got to make sure we don't stumble. we got to make sure that we're not approaching them in pride. I hate this next one. We're going to pray, God help me see when I'm a hypocrite. Mm. Didn't see that one coming, did you? Thought we were getting off easy today. Thought we were talking about the hypocrites we know. Not the hypocrites we are. (laughs) Jesus called blind fools. It's so easy for us to see the hypocrisy in other people and not see the hypocrisy in our own life. We're not blind to other people's hypocrisy, but we're blind to our own life. So as we're praying about confronting someone else, we need to step back and say, God, and help me see it in my own life. I'll never forget sitting in a service one time. There was this pastor, and he was very well-known and, and I loved his teaching. He's still well-known, and I still love his teaching. And I said, man, he was going to be in town, and I wanted to go hear him. And he got up on stage. And it was a college service, so it was college kids. And he just began to blast these college kids about how they spent money and how materialistic they were and how they were worried about this and they were worried about that when there was kids that don't have clean drinking water. And I was like, man, that's good. That's, I was like, man, he's good stuff. So all of a sudden I realized, you know what? That sucker's got true religion genes on them. Suckers cost about $399. And you know, because that time I had a, Pastor of a big church had a clothing allowance at that time in my life. So, you know, I got to go to nice places and get clothes. And now I go to TJ Maxx. And thank God for TJ Maxx. I'm not saying it's not a nice place. But I was like, I saw that shirt. It's such and such. Man, that shirt was $125. And I looked at it. I said, oh, I know. Shoes are ostrich. These are nice. I, I, believe it or not, I wore shoes. I wore dress nice back then. I was, had a little bit of money. And I added it up in my head. And I said, that sucker's got about $1,900 worth of clothes on. And he is lambasting these college kids about sacrificing. Now, so uh, you know me. So afterwards, I got invited to dinner. About five pastors with this guy. And we're sitting there, and I'm sitting there. And, and now, now, hear me out, hear me out. 
I didn't confront to restore. So I was wrong. And all the clothes he had, I had, so I didn't, I wasn't careful, you know. But I said, Mr. So-and-so, I got a question for you. Because I was just an arrogant idiot at that time in my life. I said, how many wells do you think you could have dug with that outfit you got on? And it got tense at the table. You know, two and a half years later, that pastor emailed me and said, you know that day you confronted me, I was embarrassed. And, I, and he goes, I think you confronted me wrong. He goes, but I want to thank you for, letting me, for showing me what a hypocrite I was in my own life. And there's been so many times in my own life that I see what a hypocrite I am. It's so easy for me to see the hypocrisy in someone else. I love the story of David in the Old Testament. David was the king, and we all know the story. Saul Bathsheba, he had the affair. He not only had the affair, he had the lady's husband killed. And the prophet comes along and confronts him and says, man, there was a shepherd, and he had all these sheep. And there was a party going on, but instead of killing one of his sheep, he went next door to the guy who only had one sheep, and he killed his sheep to feed everybody. And David got enraged. They ought to kill that guy. They ought to do this to that guy. And he looked at the prophet, looked at him and said, you're that guy. You could have had any woman you wanted, but you took this man's wife. You could have had anything you wanted, but you took what wasn't yours. And David didn't see the hypocrisy in his own life. We've got to see the hypocrisy in our own life. The Bible says David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, Nathan was the prophet, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. I ought to preach a sermon called, Who's the Man? It's easy to look at hypocrisy in other people's lives. But are being honest and looking at it in our own life? <laughs> Matthew 7, 5 says, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clear clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We're to confront hypocrisy. The Bible makes that very clear. And if we don't confront hypocrisy, what's going to happen is we will begin to hate those people that we deem hypocrites. And the Bible tells us we ought to confront them to restore them. And the Bible warns us we ought to confront them carefully. But we need to remember to confront ourselves for our own inadequacies. Or, here's the crazy thing, we become a hypocrite. We become the thing we hate. 